Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's Wednesday, the tenth of August, and uh, I'm so excited to be talking with Terry Chapman today about what can lead to transformation and this great phrase that you're going to hear from him: "How do we live in a world with less reactivity? Like, how do you live your life centered in a way?" Not only for you, but I don't know, the people you're around, the organizations that you're a part of, the efforts that you want to do. Is there a way to live your life uh, and see the world in ways that are about transformation and not just transactions, uh, less reactivity and more presence, all those kinds of things that we all want, you know, the things that we're, that we're longing for in our lives and somehow seem elusive. You know, they feel like that little floating thing in your eye that you kind of know is you see there, but you go to look at it and it disappears. Uh, from my own experience, that's the way lots of transformation uh, has felt, is that it feels elusive. And so I'm really excited about this conversation with Terry. I'm Doug Padgett in Minneapolis. We like to remind each other that uh, we have a lot of different perspectives and worldviews, but sometimes we sit under the same sky. So here in Minneapolis, it's another beautiful summer day. I know if you've been following this podcast and live stream, I keep saying it's a beautiful day in Minneapolis, but this neighborhood has that going on today. Terry, good to see you. Thanks for being on today. Where where are you now and, and how is the weather? Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. It's been a minute. So yeah. I, my feet touched the ground in Lonoka Harbor, New Jersey, sort of in the middle of a red spot in a blue state. Okay. What, <laughs> well, what part of the state, what part of the state is that? It's uh, kind of south of uh, Jersey okay. on the coast. I used to say the Jersey Shore, but that's lost its cachet. So it's not. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going for, though. Are you a Jer- Jersey Shore guy? And, oh, and how's the weather on the Jersey Shore? Are people out it, um, enjoying the weather today? It's hot. I think it was almost 100 degrees yesterday. Really? And, uh, is that normal, or is this one of those, man, the weather seems to be acting funny? Yeah, it's a heat wave. All right. Hey, Terry, you and I have known each other, as we were chatting before we came on, I don't know, two decades Um which you know isn't a long time in like the history of the world, but in our lives it's a long time, right? It's I don't know a third of my life I've I've known you and been hanging around, uh, maybe more than that. So, uh, and we've watched each other and been part of leading faith communities and churches and being public about that work. Can you give a little history of your own background because I think it really sets up not only how you've come to understand transformation and less reactivity and the work and, and the work that you're doing with the Center for Purposeful Leadership, but I also think it connects with people and reminds them of their, of their own stories and, and transformations and transitions and comings and goings. So would you, would you, would you remind uh, me and all of us of the, the long history of your own spirituality and, and professional work? Sure, Doug, thank you. Yeah, so we, we spoke of emergence as being kind of a theme that runs through our lives um, as we've woven our stories together over the years. You know, I think of Roca's poem, I live my life in widening circles. I may not mm-hmm. complete one, but I give myself to it. I've been circling around God, around the primordial tower for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I mm-hmm. a falcon? storm or a great song that kind of defines my life i i lean against you know what is emerging this horizon and it seems like as i move forward in my life the horizon moves and that's great it's it's great to be alive mm-hmm. my formative experience growing up was in the pentecostal tradition evangelical conservative pentecostal which is a world that if you haven't been there you have no idea <laughs> and, and that kind of created a wiring, I think, in my neuropathic mm-hmm. mystery. You know, they, they had a pretty narrow worldview and context, but they were open to 
uh, the unexplainable or to mystery. Yeah. And so that me an openness. And then I moved through that. That story became too small, and I moved through that to, um, I went to Fuller Seminary, an evangelical seminary. And during that time, I switched to the Presbyterian Church and became a Presbyterian USA clergy, mm -hmm. which had a swinging of the pendulum from, uh, say, yeah. <laughs> from uh, the Assemblies of God, where I was actually uh, ordained as a minister in my previous life, so to speak, in the Assemblies of God. Then I went to Scotland and served uh, Church of Scotland for a couple of years, and that brought me back to the States where I've served uh, churches here in New Jersey for um, 26 years. Hmm. And left that about three years ago to, quote, retire, but there's too much good work to do. And so my life has been very full and continues to be ever since. So we're going to talk about the Center for purposeful leadership and the work you're doing in these, especially these groups and these weekly conversations that you invite people into to learn and practice on how to speak to each other and to engage. Um, I want to sort of go back to even the years, um, you know, before you ended up at a Bible college, what, what was your growing up like? How, how did you grow up spiritually or what kind of family or what, what did you, yeah. what were you into when you were a kid? Sure. So um, as I said, it was in the Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God. So my parents were very committed to that uh, movement. And uh, fortunately, that kind of very conservative, pretty rigid uh, context was tempered by really compassionate parents. Mm. Uh, you know, my mother, I would say, was a bit of a mystic herself and a mm -hmm. uh, man of great integrity. And so while I was kind of exposed to that, and you know, as a child, you know, growing up in a particular context, you know, I didn't know there was anything else, you know, for, for quite a while. And as I began to move out into the world, I realized, you know, most people haven't even heard of these. Yeah. You know, and so it was just kind of, again, widening circles. It, actually, Doug, in, in almost all my uh, teaching and what I'm doing, I often begin with this question. What is the story that you're living in? Yeah. And is it too small for your mm -hmm. soul? Of which is yes, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, when we go to the edge of this current story that we're living in, that's where that, that kind of liminal space, I think, is where the growth really happens. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I think I sort of hang out there. Yeah. Um, and I find most, most life there. I remember when I first heard the phrase liminal space or liminality, honestly, it might even have been from you. Um, that, that was a, uh, a new word for a concept that was very familiar to me, this idea that you're sort of between spaces. You're not fully in one situation, but you're, you don't sense or um, have a groundedness in wherever you're going and you're, I don't know, you're in the shuttle van from the airport to the car <laughs> rental place. You know, I don't know. You're kind of in that, in that strange in-between space, yeah. knowing you're, you, that, that you have a direction that might be identifiable. And some of us really like those liminal spaces and other people, boy, they just, um, you know, it's easy to sum this up by people saying like, hey, it's a part... Life's about the journey, not the destination. I mean, that's kind of pop phrase for that sort of thing. Like, hey, you know, be present, live, live where you are. It's not always pleasant for every temperament, personality, or even every life situation and circumstance. And I realized in my own life, liking liminality and this in-between kind of space and wanting to identify it and 
treasure it and even try to preserve it at times. Um, other people in my sphere of influence, so family or friends or church that, that I ran and, and organized, um, not everybody wants to be in those, in those spaces. And that gets really hard, right? When you're cherishing or benefiting from a particular moment in time in life, and the people that are interacting with you that you've covenanted with or whatever, whatever your deal is with them, they don't really want that. And as leaders, we can end up sort of separating our life a little bit from the thing that matters to us versus the thing that we're, that we're leading in. D does any of that resonate with you or do you think about it like that at all? Absolutely, man. So uh, another metaphor for this that's helpful for me. Last month, I was in Denmark traveling uh, with with my partner, Jan, who just to mention is a psychologist and specializes in trauma and somatic work. And so she's doing some really, really great work. Anyway, we were in Denmark uh, mm -hmm. visiting family and went to the very tip of, of uh, Northern Denmark to the place where the Baltic Sea and the North Sea meet. And you can see the two seas kind of coming together and crashing, you know, it's just an amazing nice. thing. And I remember that in the Sufi tradition, they, they speak of this kind of liminal space where the two seas meet. And it's become yeah. a very important metaphor for me because on, on one hand, um, it's very important for me to stay grounded in mm. my beloved mm. child of God. You know, to know that my deepest rootedness is, is, is uh, love. Right? Mm. And so I, I kind of stay grounded in that one uh, experience, but then as as Rumi says here, I, I love poetry, man. I'm a little bit of a poet myself. But Rumi said, "I was happy enough to stay still inside the pearl, inside the shell, but the hurricane of experience lashed me out of hiding and made wow. me a wave moving into shore, saying loudly the ocean secret. As I went and then spent there, I slept like fog against the cliff. Another stillness." Wow. So wow. It's to stay. And, you know, so I, I try to stay grounded in my own spiritual practice. Mm. My primary spiritual practice is walking, hopefully mm -hmm. in the every day, and centering prayer, meditation, kind of a Christian form of meditation. And if I don't stay grounded in that, I can quickly move into my own kind of reactivity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if I just stay there and not find expression of that in my life, it turns into some kind of regressive fundamentalism. So it's like, you know, that inner tidal zone between knowing that I know that I know in my bones that I'm loved and it's all going to be well, and then moving into the chaos of life with some expression of that. And I'll end this kind of little rant with this. So, you know, I've kind of made my home there and sort of see my calling really clear on this, my calling to be, I don't know, sort of like a lifeguard at mm. that liminal space between the mystery and the expression of that mystery in life. And to be there, hopefully, with a less reactive and helpful presence to help people navigate that. Uh, do, do you put those two together, your actual physical presence of walking and centering prayer? Like, are those when you said you do those things, do you do them together? Do you have a walking prayer practice or do you walk and then also have a separate centering prayer yeah. and work? It's the latter mostly. Although uh -huh. it, when I'm walking, I usually find myself moving into some sort of rhythm of, of what I would call prayer. You know, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's just bringing my awareness of the divine. And it, I think for me, it's being out in the more than human world. Yeah. It, yeah. The access to that. But centering is, uh, you know, a set sit. You know, I often do it with my wife every morning for mm. 20 minutes. And it's really an, an action of consent, you know, mm. just like, as I'm able. Because <laughs> monkey mind is a big thing for me. Yeah, know? yeah. As I'm able to let go again and again. It's based on the teaching of Thomas Keating, um, mm. a Christian who brought, you know, experience kind of the, the Eastern meditation and the beauty of that and wanting to bring that into the West. So I started this kind of movement of of meditation the, uh, this metaphor of a lifeguard at the in the place where the seas are are meeting knowing people are in there that's a different metaphor than being a like a swim coach which a lot of leaders think of themselves as a swim coach right yeah. like my job is to teach people a way to be and to do Beautiful. Do, yeah. do you think lifeguard specifically in relationship to not like a swim coach or something, or is yeah. that was that was that not a choice of of difference? I love that man. Yeah. So here's what I think. So to, to frame the context, I think we're living in, you know, to use the word apocalyptic times. You know, things are unraveling. Uh, big things are unraveling, and so because we're hardwired for reactivity. Mm-hmm. You know, which will lead to increasing violence. So, as things continue to unravel, the value of answers goes down. And so, for me to stand at this kind of liminal place and just be curious, I'm, I'm also a spiritual director, and so I love like sitting with people and just saying, "So, what's the story? You know, what's going on in your life?" And uh, spiritual direction is a bit of a misnomer. So, it isn't so much like uh, a swim coach mm. as it. Is um, you know, this kind of a posture of curiosity mm-hmm. and kind of uh, actually a, a primary um, assumption at the Center for Purposeful Leadership in these conversations is, is the wisdom really is in the room, you know, in the collective wisdom that is gathered. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, uh, tapping into that collective wisdom uh, because mm. that's where it really lies. So less mm. of a teacher than yeah. as a kind of abiding presence, something like that. Were, were you able to be that same way when you were a pastor or did you feel the <laughs> many roles of pastoring pulling you one way or the other? It was tough, man. You know, so yeah. uh, you know, my, my last experience was I was 18 years in a Presbyterian church here in the same town where I currently live. And um, we, we walked together over those 18 years and it was pretty hard at times from a pretty, especially around LGBTQ, Mm-hmm. Uh, context and uh, ordination issues and all these things. It, it was pretty tough navigating that space given mm-hmm. the conservative context in which I live. But we managed through some really hard conversations to move toward a beautiful, welcoming, and inclusive, at least intention. And I think so it's hard, you know, mm-hmm. Aster. As you know, brother, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's like, I remember, actually, I remember the sermon I preached after the, the uh, Trump won the last election, and I just, I, I, I just let it all out. You know, I was like, uh-huh. preaching perhaps more 
African American tradition. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You dug deep. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, I remember just a, a series sort of a staccato things. I said, "Well, you know, we'll wait and see." But if this happens, yeah, we won't wait anymore. And so I was just like listing the things that, and people really were upset at this. You know, so that was the context. So the second, yeah. uh, the second Sunday after that sermon. I actually printed out the sermon and I said, so what are you upset about here again? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like intention and impact are sometimes misaligned. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. You, you mentioned this, this beautiful Rumi quote. Um, and for a lot of people are familiar with Rumi poetry and, uh, but not everyone. And, and I find, I mean, all the translations of Rumi poetry is just stunning right and it's it is it identifies things that we live and experience that i live and experience as a you know a middle-aging you know white guy in minneapolis and it's fascinating to me that the social content or, or context of rumi was so different than that can, can you do, do you know enough rumi sort of history to give people a little bit of a of a of a picture of Rumi's situation and setting, because I think I think it's easy to tell ourselves the situation of our lives, where we're living, our social construct, the United States. That's what's creating this feeling in me. And then you hear this, you know, poetry from other times, other places, and you say to yourself, "Oh, maybe this is a human experience I'm having, not just a, a momentary cultural experience." Yeah. So I think there might be something in that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually forgetting it. I, I don't have a strong capacity to remember dates and content. Mm -hmm. One thing that I would say is Rumi and other poets um, in that sort of genre tap into what might be considered the perennial stream. You know, underneath the contextual silos of human experience, there runs a stream that it's just true. And mm -hmm. great poetry, you know, Mary Oliver. <laughs> right, you know? right. Others just kind of touch into that. And that's really, you know, man, what makes my heart sing. And I know you too, you know, to, you know, we live in these silos, these contextual mm -hmm. religion and politics and, but to touch into that, yeah, that place, man, you know, and then to translate into the various contexts uh, mm -hmm. that mean just true and life-giving. Yeah, you just think, Rumi, this, you know, poet from the 1200s in Afghanistan, what we now call Afghanistan, Iran, you know, Persia, talking about the kinds of things that you raised there and that, you know, throughout um, much of the selected poetry that's been translated gets into this space of, uh, can, can you say the beginning or maybe all of that poem that you said a moment ago? Because I think it was, it was really, really poignant to, to hear someone expressing this idea that I have a sense of the the pearl, the divine, but then the pressures from the outside world. And you say, oh, this is a person, you know, I don't know, in 1230, you know, uh, in Persia saying these things, not someone with social media running at them, not someone who has to live under the, the political nightmare that, you know, we sort of see in our, in our situation, not the racism that we see here, but the culturalism and racism of that period. So I, I think it's just helpful to sort of hear this uh, in a not contemporary mindset and to ask ourselves what is in the human experience that seems to transcend place and, and uh, time to, 
you know, tap into something more, more true and real. You know, if Rumi was the third person in this uh, podcast this morning, he, he might say something like, I am a poet of longing, huh. and that's the human experience, longing. So Rumi would say, mm. don't ask for water, ask to be thirsty. Don't ask for water, ask to be thirsty, because longing, Rumi would say, is wow. the most direct path to the divine. All you know, the great poets tap into this, you know, this eros, this kind of yeah, fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, you know, in theological terms, it's the imago Dei, this kind of place in us where the divine lives. And when we are kind of stuck in the spell of separation, mm. poetry stirs up that human longing for a connection. Mm -hmm. This poem, again, is a beautiful poem of, of longing. I was happy enough to stay still. Yeah inside the pearl, inside the shell, but the hurricane of experience lashed me out of hiding and made me a wave moving, moving, a wave moving into shore. I love this line, saying loudly the ocean secret. Yeah, that's unbelievable I, stuff. Bent there, I slept like fog against the cliff, another stillness. Yeah, it actually reminds me of, who was it, uh, you know, who talked about, well, actually, the, Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher, talked about a first and second naivete. Mm -hmm. And uh, who was it said, I wouldn't give uh, a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I give my love for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Mm. You know, we can stay inside kind of an, a first naivete. And that's what a lot of religion, I think, does, you know, and, you know, the kind of, you know, I don't, don't bother me, you know, life is hard as it is, you know, so mm -hmm. what? about this kind of transformation, and yet the hurricane of experience will lash us all, man, Yeah, you know, out of hiding. And so to yeah. be there, to be a holding presence in that movement, mm -hmm. say, you know, I hear you. you know, I, I think, Doug, the most powerful experience I think I ever had of, of the divine, you know, in my own life, the mystery of the universe, of greater reality, is to kind of sense or hear, not in an audible voice, but just kind of the words, I know. Mm. Mm -hmm. So for me to be there when people are grieving or feeling like the bottom's dropping off, and it feels like uh, my spiritual directees, these people that I talk to on a regular basis, it feels like they're all coping with kind of an impasse mm. lives. And just to be able to say, tell me more. I don't have answers, but I have questions. This this idea of trauma is is interesting to me. And, you know, just have your wife on sometime, and actually, she should come on and talk with my wife Shelley, who is a yoga teacher and instructor, and is doing a lot of work in trauma informed yoga as it as people experience it in their body, and then body movement that helps to identify identify those issues. So, trauma is a, a growing area of understanding for for a lot of people, and somewhere related to that. Are the, is is regret, right? So some things and ways that that we've lived, and so if you're okay, I, I want to dive in a little bit to like how you've thought about your own your own past, because anyone who's gone through the kinds of transformations, changes religiously, personally that, that you have, I think, has some some insight here. It can be easy for people to think about the past they were raised in, maybe that they chose or that, you know, in your case, you didn't, you didn't choose to be raised in a 
religious situation that gave you certain narratives and frames and all. And to some degree, you probably didn't even have all freedom of choice to pick your next step. Like the, the next available steps were pre-sorted by the by the past, right? So you were never totally free to just go do whatever, right? You're set in a location and you have responsibilities and you only know certain people and it's just, so, you know, we can feign a freedom for choice, but we don't always have it. And it can be hard for some people to incorporate their past, to transcend it and include it in, in where they are. But that seems incredibly important that people do something like that and not just sort of take the impulse of, you know, the Amazing Grace song to say, I was blind, now I see, I'm leaving all that darkness behind and just moving into the light, you know, this kind of thing. But rather to say, oh, these are all moments that shape me. And yet my current self isn't always fully pleased with my previous self and how and what I did and how I lived and the thing. So this regret kind of, I don't know, it, it, it lives in there. And sometimes the things we regret are not the things that we thought were a bad thing at one point. It's things that we thought that was just the best I could do. And yet I'm really, I don't know what to do with the regret of the choices that I made that I thought were really good choices. But boy, I can see how limited they were now because I now have this more mature perspective. It feels like that, that level of regret and trauma that we carry with us it, it's it's powerful. Like when you say, what story are you in and is it too small? Boy, some people's ability to deal with our own past um, is really, really difficult. Um, so we recast it or we re-narrate it or we tell, you know, you find this out every time you go to a family get together and you start talking with relatives you grew up with and you're like, oh yeah, I've totally forgot or I saw that differently or I didn't even remember that. My sister said to me, I was giving a ride to the airport and you know, she's 58, I'm 56. And she said something about, well, where we lived as a kid. And you know, that's just up around the corner where I got hit by that school bus. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I totally forgot you got hit by a school bus. She was like, I wouldn't forget that I got hit by, like for her, that was an immovable memory. And for me, it was like, I, I you know, it was. I remember now how important it was and how framing it was. So, I, do you have any do you have any thoughts about that? How people deal with their own past and history and regret and all, and what we do with that now? Because um, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people who listen to this and pay attention to this stream are people that have gone through their own transformations and 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 that old life isn't all that far away. It's one phone call. It's one friend. It's one get together. It's, you know, it's it's being embodied by other people currently. It's not like it's, you know, uh uh disappeared. It's alive and well. Yeah, man. Yeah. So perhaps two things. Um first trauma. You know, Jan and Shelley, your wife would say that the issues are in the tissues, right? So trauma, these kind of past events that were traumatic events get stored uh, physiologically and cellularly mm-hmm. in our bodies. And so it's, you just can't erase those sort of memories by will, you know, so there's somatic ways and, you know, of, of discharging some mm-hmm. of that energy. So that, that's one thing. Um, another approach to uh, use the word regret, which is somewhat different energy than trauma. You yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even we look back and uh, I would do things differently, perhaps, what I know now, but I, I 
you know, knew what I knew at the time. But the practice of grieving mm-hmm, there you go. one's inconsummate story. You know, that, uh, you know, Carl Rahner, I mentioned earlier, he said once uh, this, he said, it is in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable in this life, we come to realize all symphonies remain unfinished. It, let me say it again, it is, in, it is in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable in this life. You know, we get somewhere on the path, yeah. I feel good, but there's, this horizon keeps moving. You know, we realize all symphonies are meant to finish. So there's like, uh, there's both grieving intentionally, you know, doing that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As if we don't intentionally and consciously grieve, it metastasizes and finds expression. Richard Rohr, you know, one of our teachers says, if we don't uh, uh, transform our pain, we will transmit it. And mm-hmm. so being conscious of those unfinished narratives that we regret and working with that ground hopefully in a compassionate container, can transform that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why we need these holding places. You know, um, one of the, the primary uh, offerings that I, uh, programs at Center for Purposeful Leadership is some work that I do with Carolyn Baker, who is a colleague of mine, uh, a, a dear friend. And we offer a program called Weaving Threads of Grief and Joy. And so, as uh, the Center for Purposeful Leadership is intended to um, be a place where leaders and everyone's a leader because you have influence, mm-hmm. person, right? We all have influence. So, how can we hold the space, as we've said? And uh, so, a primary offering of that is as a leader, how can we hold the space for grief? You know, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of grief. Mm-hmm. And so, we're offering this program in October, and. Uh, yeah, I could say more about Center for Purpose Leadership. We do some. Yeah, I'd love for you too. Yeah, okay. Can you tell us about it. And these these weekly um, essential conversations is, I think, a real a real gift and a real fascinating piece. Can you say something about that? Yeah, it was in March of um, twenty twenty. I was in Uganda. That's another uh, expression of my work. I do a lot of work with children in Uganda. Actually, mm-hmm. I went once, and a mutual friend of ours uh, to Uganda, and really fell in love with the people there. So I was in Uganda in, in uh, early, uh, late winter, 2020, and came back to the pandemic, you know, barely made it back to the country as the pandemic was unfolding. And I called my dear friend, uh, Craig Neal, the founder of the Center for Purposeful Leadership and the author, co-author of The Art of Convening. And I said, Craig, what are we going to do? You know? And so we started these every Monday morning conversations. And I think next week, I'm actually convening it next Monday. Um, at uh, eight, it's ninety minutes, eight eight a.m. Central Time. Um, uh, called essential conversations, and I think that's one hundred and sixteen that, that we've convened. Wow! And so it's live on Zoom, you know. And we we bring often we bring conversation starters, uh, authors, uh, you know, leaders, Margaret Wheatley, uh, Richard Barrett, uh, Richard Leiter, others. You know, have come to, uh, and uh, we can invite you soon to come and be a conversation starter who brings, uh, you know, starts a conversation for 15 or 20 minutes. And then we have an opportunity to move into what we call wisdom circles. Again, because that's where the goal lies. And usually there's, you know, we've had, I think we average 30, 40 people, but sometimes as many as more than 60 or 70 on these calls. And wow. uh, 
it's just really been great. It's a lot of work, as you know, to sustain uh, kind of this weekly. This, <laughs> yeah. but it's been really rewarding. What, what talk about why these wisdom circles and the the convening model that you use and that you're uh, developing and and extending. Um, why why is that important? Um, why is it important for people to be in in smaller groups over some time and just all all the all the manifestations? Because it feels like when people it feels like the action and practices of the circles and of having a conversation is equal in power to the topic of the conversation. So yeah. the, it's the practice itself that has that can have forming and shaping and and you know benefits sure. to it, and and not just the topic and the words and the the ideas that are expressed. Absolutely. That's it, man. You know, it's like going from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. Right? <laughs> You're full of these lines. Honestly, if you don't have like a little a little uh, Terry Chapman colloquialisms uh, list somewhere, I, it would be really beneficial for people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <Totally>. it's, <laughs> okay, let, let me just pause before you say beautiful things about this this act, art of, art of convening and the, and the process of it. Um, have you always been someone who can remember phrases and punctuations like that like I, I i try them all the time and i i would just mess them up like i can't remember the rhythm and the poetry and then people like you just pop these things out and you know i know you're not reading it off of a screen it's you know you're it's it's just it's in there have you always been that way to just be able to remember a great phrase with that's full of insight and you know just apply yeah. it in the moment you know don't don't overstate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you've done it about six times here already in, you know, whatever we've been at it for 35 minutes. So it's pretty great. It's a great skill and gift. Um, have, have you really, though? I mean, have you always been that way? Like you're a guy that remembers song what? lyrics or you're someone that remembers phrases from shows and movies? And because there's, I don't know, there's like groups of people that can do that. And then others of us who just look on with admiration when, when someone makes well, I, that into attention to it. Like there are some things I do like to memorize. Have you ever uh, seen or heard David White in person? No, only through a. Uh, uh, video thing. One of our co-leaders of all this will come and good stuff. Samir Samalovich is really connected to David White and has done some in-person events with him, but I've never had the privilege. Yeah, I've seen Sam videos and stuff. I know Samir well. He's a great guy. Anyway, uh, David, like he has memorized like hundreds of poems. He'll mm -hmm. just stand, you know, <laughs> and recite these poems. I'm not that, you know, so there are okay. a few things that I've memorized and I repeat them all the time. <laughs> So people that know you well and are listening to this are like, oh, uh, Doug's just being uh, Doug's just being <laughs> wooed by the by the the, the memorized set. Yeah. Well, it's still impressive. Like you are, uh, you are to me where maybe David White is to you. Like it's it's an impressive an impressive feature. Thank you, brother. All right, all right. So 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 tell us about what 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 that what the art and the act of convening is, and really this relationship piece because I feel like relationship is the center. Like I think story is important. I think um, uh, practices that we do and fundamentally human beings are relational characters and beings and the degree to which we are in healthy relationship with the divine ourself and others, you know, it's Jesus teaching. We call that love God yourself and others, which just, I think just means right integration and relationship. Um, between those is really important. 
And some traditions really get into practices and really get into content and not, they don't always care about the relational component uh, of them and the, the, I don't know, the kind of human relationality uh, of it. But the convening theory and the art of convening feels like it's fundamentally that. It's about people interacting with each other. Yeah. And that feels different to me. Maybe, maybe it's not than people that are action-focused or content-focused. It feels like it's different. So I'm just wondering if you think about it that way. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, primary value at the Center for Purposeful Leadership is that all transformation is relational. Huh. All transformation is relational. So, uh, Craig and Patricia Neal um, and Cynthia Wald, I think of 2011, 2012, published this book, The Art of Convening. And it's a, it's a model, it's a convening wheel that has nine aspects. And at the center is what is called the heart of the matter. Hmm. Every spoke of the wheel goes back to the heart of the matter. And at the heart of the matter are two questions. Who are we? Hmm. And how are we called to be together? Hmm. It's really, really fascinating. If people haven't gone to centerforpurposefulleadership.org, so just that phrase, you know, Center for Purposeful Leadership, that's the organization that Terry Chapman, who we're talking to, is connected with. That's their website, and you'll see the events they have. These uh, how you yeah. can sign up for being a part of an essential conversation uh, on these Mondays. They're they're open to people, and you're you're welcome to be a, be a part of them. Yeah. So just to kind of pull on that thread um, a little bit more, um, it really has the, the Center for Purposeful Leadership. I'm the director of Convening Communities, and we, we've just uh, trans transitioned from a for profit company to a not for profit, and really look hmm. our, our the social enterprise or a social social profit, you know, and it's this transitional place right now that, you know, moving the culture from a program delivery company, trainings and convening and other trainings, try to get people engaged, becoming stewards of the organization. I think that's mm. really essentially what is needed in the world. You know, this is, mm. it has become for me my primary community. And I just have great, I just get great joy and nurturing there. And I want to share that with other people, you know, so mm. that's, that's really what it's about. And just one more thing about that, to move from um, a Christian silo, as beautiful as that was for those many years, to this kind of more diverse community, just brings so much life into my, yeah, my world, yeah. you know, all different kind of perspectives. And this is the world that you live in as well, you know, and it's yeah. beautiful kind of expand that content. You, you, you'd said, you know, for 20, 28 years, you were working in the same town you're in now as a pastor. I don't know if you've ever tried the thought experiment, but I don't know, 20 years ago in 2002, had you run into the current, if the current work that Center for Purposeful Leadership is doing now, I don't know, was it in a time fold doing that back in 2002, and you 20 years ago would have seen that how would that all have struck you? How, how, how would you have thought about it in that stage of life and pastoring and kind of where you, where you saw yourself then and, and, and the work that you had in front of you to do? Yeah, beautiful question. I'm not sure I can answer it, but beautiful question. It, it has, you know, so I, I think the kind of emergence and evolution of my life has been both, um, there's a continuity and an unfolding and mm -hmm. then major shifts at particular times. 
Um, so I, I may, as I kind of imagine going back in time, um, I may have shifted from my role mm-hmm. as of a local congregation sooner because um, mm-hmm. I be- I think I've become more aware of what is needed in the Who knows? You know, um, I knew what I knew at that time. But yeah. I, I mean, yeah. You know, like, I just am so glad to be alive at this time, brother. You know, there's just yeah. so much work to do. And uh, the challenges, of course, are there. And there's a lot of, as I said, grief. But, uh, you know, the, so retirement is like, what? <laughs> I have colleagues. So, so what are you going to do when you retire? Mm-hmm. You know, some people are going to play golf or go on cruises. Yeah. And, you know? yeah, you're going to do other things, but, and this is part of it. I mean, but part of what I find interesting about this 20-year, I don't know, window of time in our lives is just to recognize that we now, wherever we are now in our lives, have a different set of experiences and capacities and containers to hold and projects to be about and anxieties to deal with. Um that allow us to do things now that we couldn't and maybe even should not have in, tried to endeavor in at, at other times. You know? And I'm not yeah. saying it's about age or anything. It's just what life experiences people have. I, I run into people, I don't know, 30 years younger than me, and their experiences for their 26 years have been closer to my last 20 years than you know, my, my previous 20 years. So it's not about age. It's just about what experiences we've had and and how yeah. we've had them and could we could we see those things um and take them on uh then versus now and trying to just and trying to honor that that change and mm-hmm. and recognizing that and um i don't know feeling like yeah, we have as much. Um, there's as big of a project in front of us as there as there is behind us. Yeah. You know, I know this is kind of middle aged guy talk here, right? Or middle aged person talk, where you sort of wonder. You know, um, Jillian and I just had our 34th wedding anniversary, and depending on how things go, we may have had longer together than we do in front of us, right? Like these kinds of realizations, where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, let's let's recognize you know that and that we're not the same people and the next decades are going to be significantly different than the previous ones because of a lot of things and circumstances and just reorienting ourselves to the new adventure um i don't know feels it, it kind of feels that way right like i'm ready for this now and i wasn't before and yeah. or I don't know, was ready and wasn't, I don't know, that's, that's not really the words I'm trying to, but you see what I'm getting at, right? Like there's a sense that there's, there, there's something available to us now. So I, I, a lot of things I do now, there's no, 20 years ago, if I saw, if somebody presented to me, hey, you could do, and they named my life right now and said, how about if you do that 20 years ago? I'd have been like, I don't, do I not want to do that? I don't know how to do that. And I've got other stuff to do. Like, I can't be doing this, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and I feel so similarly now, you know, people have said, because I've, I've stopped working after 20 years at the church that I worked at. And people said, oh, you think you're going to get back into that? And I'm like, well, you know, depending on how the next few years go, I may have to, you know, go become a Methodist minister just to, you know, get a paycheck. But short of that, no, I don't see myself just going, doing those things again. Um, yeah. and having to rec- reconcile that, right? Like that, I spent 
significant life energy doing a thing that I wouldn't want to do now. And I do things now that I totally would not have wanted to be doing back then. That, that experience of development and growth, I don't know, I find it just, I find it really fascinating. And, and how do you put together all the resources for your future that you had for your past? That's, that's sort of the thing I'm babbling on about here. Yeah, so I, I just, uh, I'll, in a couple of weeks, I'll turn 67. Mm. And so looking at the horizon, you know, getting closer and closer. And, uh, you know, I, I hear like 20 years ago, you're right. So the currency of my life at that point is different than the currency that I have right now. But my intention at this stage of my life, I, I say this very sincerely, I want to be spent. Hmm. I, I want to be spent. I want the, the currency, the, the well that I have, you know, the, the, the insights that I've gained, hmm. the poetry that has come through my life, the relationships and experiences. Uh, you know, I, I want them to flow through me into the world, like in Rumi's poem. And made me a wave moving into the shore, saying loudly the ocean secret as I went and then spent there. Hmm. There's no holding back, man. Yeah, that's but, but, I, I, or, like discernment now, because I want to be wise in how my currency is being spent. Mm -hmm. And it's in relationship with my, my friends and colleagues. You know, discernment is literally, I teach about discernment, and it's sifting through the opportunity. Hmm. What is the currency that I have in my hand? What is the information that I have? What does the world need? Am I the one to do it? So, you mm. know, these questions are really important at this stage mm. of my life. Yeah, those are, those are elusive notions to me. I, I can't quite, I'm not good at that stuff. So I, we should chat about that some other time offline, how I could get better at that. Because I just feel like every time I've tried to like be that person that like decides and the, this and that, I don't know, something happens. And when I just sort of go with it and meet and serendipitously have experiences, it's like, wow, that feels like that's all the color. Like the other stuff feels like it's the shape, but boy, the color is popping from those other. So I, yeah, it's, that's such a, and I've, but I've thought, and I've thought a lot about like, yeah, okay, but at some point you're going to reach the age where you have to do this. Like you just got to start, you know, paying, paying attention and putting a little, putting a little, uh, intentionality and discernment behind things. I'm like, I don't know that I have the, the skills for that. Well, it seems like you're doing pretty well with it, uh, you know, navigating your path. You know, you're doing really good work. and Yeah, yeah, it feels like it, like, but it does. It also just feels like, I don't know, you sort of take what's coming. You know, I feel more like, uh, you know, I think about those batters in baseball. I'm not a big baseball fan, so I might, or, uh, you know, fan, so maybe I'll get this sort of wrong, but when I played in Little League Baseball as a kid, I think I swung at like the first five pitches, no matter what what they were, you know? And the other more patient batters would stand there and wait for their pitch. And I was like, I don't know, I'm probably going to get a hold of one of these. You know, I'd foul a couple of them off and I struck out a lot. And I remember our coach saying, you don't have to swing at the first pitch. And I always felt like... <clears throat> Well, I don't know. It seems like, well, that seems as good as it. Like, there's kind of a temperament thing of like, I don't know, just swing at the, just, just take a swing at the first one. And the people who are more successful uh, in baseball overall, of course, are those super patient ones that know how to pick a pitch. And I don't know, it feels like a metaphor for life somehow that I'm just like, I don't know, I'm going to get five swings. I'll probably take them on the first five pitches. Hey, this, uh, when you were talking about, you know, being spent and all, 
I think I hear you talking about that in a way that's not sacrificial, right? It's not like, hey, my job in life is to empty myself and burn myself out and kind of leave, like not not have anything for me, which some people hear sort of instinctively, especially if they're come well, from many all, all the traditions have it, but you know, I know it most well inside the American religious Christian tradition this kind of sacrifice narrative that I think is really harmful to the human spirit. I hear you saying something else that's more about effort and mm-hmm. all the rest. When I, I used to be an ultra marathon runner, just started doing in my forties. And now I can't do that because of a hip replacement. So I ride bicycles long, long ways, but I like endurance sports. And one of the Terry Chapman like quotes that I do actually remember is a t-shirt that I saw running behind someone in a, one of those ultra marathons and it it said um, ultra marathons which just means a marathon longer than 26 miles so they tend to be things that really sort of wear, wear you out and it said ultra marathons um, you've got what it takes and it will take everything you've got right and it was this kind of idea that oh you're totally ready for this and it's going to be a real effort and it's not pain or sacrifice. It is expending the assets, resources that you have for all this, for all this goodness. Is that, is that similar to how you're thinking when you say, I want to be spent? Yeah. Do you contrast that with a sacrifice narrative versus a more? Yeah. What's kind of shimmering for me is the word flow. You know, I want to be in flow. And in order for me to be in flow, I have to attend to my interior state, my own mm-hmm. self Um, You know, Otto Scharmer in his book, Theory You, quoted uh, actually an insurance executive, William O'Brien, who said, here's another quote for your brother, the success of any intervention is dependent upon the interior state of the intervener. You know, wow. so it's really important that, you know, so I, I love traveling. I I do backpacking, although I, I upgraded to an Airstream travel trailer now. Oh, so, uh, you know, so my wife and I were camping this past weekend, you know, just to get out. And, you know, I've got uh, some quite a bit of travel in my schedule. I love that. And uh, yet, you know, I have passion for life and mm. passion all suffering or at least pain. Passio mm-hmm. is rooted in the word for mm. to So there's like an intentional edge state or suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not from a, an egoic place, but from really uh, more of an intention to surrender and consent mm-hmm. to flow. Yeah, um, all yeah. kinds of th- words around that. But uh, you know, I think that's my intention to be, you know, to hold hold that balance really between making sure that I have a currency and not burnt out. Yeah, overwhelmed, maybe whelmed. But not overwhelmed. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Let me be whelmed. Um, I, I feel the same way about the word nonchalant. I need to be chalant, apparently. Not sure what it means, but I don't want to be nonchalant. So I'm yeah. going to find chalantness. Um, I, I've recently started playing guitar. I know. Uh, started, started in January. Um, it's been a, any new project people take on as adults, I think, has this these characteristics to them, right? There's sort of a beginner's mind. There's all that joy and beginner's mind stuff and, you know, um, just a lot, a lot of cross-currents of, of experience. I've been surprised at how much uh, in sort of the be- end of the beginner and into the intermediate 
level of guitar instruction that my in-person instructors and the online people that I use, some recorded and some in an apps, all talk about relaxing. They're like, hey, we're pretty sure your guitar strumming sounds horrible. I'm like, yes, like talking back to YouTube videos. Like, yeah, it totally sounds horrible. Can you help me? Have it? And then they'll talk about, so you really have to relax that wrist. You have to relax that arm. You have to remember to breathe. Mm. And th those are things that I just never would have pulled into th this action, right? <laughs> like, I'm learning to play the guitar. I feel like everything is so precise and so deliberate. And you have to hit the fifth string on a strum, not the sixth string or the fourth. Like, those things are that far apart. You know, I don't know, a quarter of an inch apart. I don't have time to relax. And they're like, oh, that's the only way it's going to work is to breathe and relax and doing all these hand exercises to loosen and relax. It feels like that's this. That's also true in these things you're talking about, right? Finding a way to flow and release and relax for the purpose of intentionality and for a chord to ring out and, you know, and, and all the rest. So um, it's been really fascinating. Do, do you see some of that in, in what you're talking about and some of what the Center for Purposeful Leadership is trying to do is give people this, I don't know, simultaneous, re re relaxed space along with the, the, I don't know, the action or precision. Sure, yeah. Uh, a, a favorite song that I've been living with recently is, I forget the artist's name, but the words are, loosen, loosen, baby, you don't have to carry the weight of the world in your muscles and bones. Let go, let go, you know, wow. so that, you know, so breathe, breath, yeah. relax, central practices. There's another word I'd like to add to that trifecta, and it's the word consent. Mm. There's breath, you know, it brings us home to our body. We, we uh, are in partners with HeartMath. We had Deb Rosman recently as an essential conversation starter and, you know, coming to that energy of the heart and beginning to breathe through the heart mm. is a really beautiful practice of centering. So we practice that and then uh, relax, you know, just kind of, we often do kind of some kind of embodied meditation, you know, this kind of intention of surrender to love with a capital mm. L, the greatest reality um, is, is a really beautiful part of of what it means to be spent, you know, it's, yeah. Terry, thank you for this conversation. Um, if people do want to connect over at the Center for Purposeful Leadership, the, the best thing is just to go to the website and- Yeah, go to the website. Start signing up. We also, at, at the website, you'll see an invitation to join. We have a Mighty Networks uh, community, mm -hmm. uh, leadership community. That's a great place where we're trying to get some engagement. But the website has all the information be great to meet people there. And if anybody wants to contact me, I'd be glad to talk to them as well. They great find your information on the, can they find it there on the website? Like there'll be a yeah details yeah. about all that. Um, and, and you, and you do other things. You're, you're an author, you've put out yeah. writings in the past and you produce videos and the other stuff as well. That is addition yeah. to the website. Yeah. I, I think the, the things that I'm involved with is um, men's work. So I'm very involved with a, a group called Illumin. Hmm. By Richard Rohr, we do men's work around the world. So I'm very involved with that. Uh, Illumen, like Illumen, but Illuman. And the, the primary uh, thing that is offered there is something called the Men's Rite of Passage, which is a five-day huh. 
very experience, so involved with that. My work in Uganda um, it really ke- keeps me alive. I've, I've been to Uganda nine times, going again in the spring. Mm-hmm. Beautiful partner in Uganda uh, with children. And so there's plenty, plenty of good work to do. Yeah. Well, what a treat. Thank you for this, yeah. for this great conversation today. Thanks, Doug. Great to hey, see you. Hey, thanks uh, to Lisa, Kimberly. I'm going through the chat here. Uh, Dan, anything we should pop up? Craig, Randall D., Jim, Marjorie, Alex. Yeah, people just reminding us of what great questions there are. You know, it's a story you're living in too small and all the rest. So thanks to all of you for all your great commentary and, and chatting with each other. And if you don't yet watch this over on YouTube, that's the best place to do it. The most interaction and uh, and uh, helps us in a lot of ways and helps you in your own ways. You'll find out once you get over into the YouTube world if you're in only the Twitter or Facebook Twitch world. So thanks, and we'll be back. Uh, hey, by the way, on Friday, we'll be putting out some material from... Uh, an event and press conference and some counter-programming for a Christian nationalist event that's going on in Batavia, New York, which is between Rochester, New York, and Buffalo. So, friends, keep your eyes out for that. There's a big Reawaken America conference, which is sort of a traveling roadshow of Christian nationalism and insurrectionists supporting political work. And Faith in Public Life, Faithful America, and Vote Common Good are coming together to do an, uh, a press conference and event there. So if you know people who live in the Rochester or Buffalo area, um, tell them that we're, we're up to something there. We'd love to see them at that event. And uh, we'll record that and get that available uh, to all of you so you can see that kind of action that's going on because it's just a lot of, a lot of work we have to do in this world. So, Terry, thank you. Thanks, and we'll sir. talk to all of you uh, next time around. Bye-bye.